0: I think there's so many ways in which we can sort of think about the philosophies of life and leadership that in one sense mirror what's happening at that physics level, but another sense is sort of pushing by way of physics and the discoveries and the need to discover push back into the human element of leadership and culture and all of
1: that there. Welcome to the Explorations Podcast, conversations through the lens of philosophy, arts, finance, leadership, theology, and more. I'm your host, Luis Hernandez, and I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts, Edwin and Joe. Edwin and Joe, how are you guys doing today?
0: Doing great. Feeling great. Got my Nespresso shot going. So I got some caffeine in the blood ready to go. Love
1: it. Love it. Ready to go. Ready to go. Today's episode, we're taking a look at the recently released film by Christopher Nolan Oppenheimer. I wanted to start this conversation first looking at the cultural phenomena of the film because it's been kind of a big deal. It's grossed over $700 million in the box office and it's been out for like a month. (laughs) I'm very excited to talk about it because there's just so much to talk about. And so to start off our conversation, I wanted to ask you guys what the experience of watching the film is like. Now for context, for the listener who could be listening at some point in the future, there's a cultural phenomenon known as Barbenheimer, which is the release <laughs> of both, both films, Barbie and Oppenheimer. It happens the same weekend. And the New York Times called it the last fun weekend of the summer as far as cinema, because there's currently a, a writer strike going on. Cinema itself is in a bit of an existential crisis. And so Hollywood released these two monster films and the experience of that, the stories behind it. We're going to dive deep into today. So let's start with you, Joe. How did you see Oppenheimer? What were your initial impressions? And what do you hope to jump into in this conversation today?
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed watching the movie. I loved the layout of having multiple storylines going on at once. That was really fun even though it was three hours, for me, it didn't feel like that. So I'm appreciative of it. There was a sense of nostalgia as I was watching it, not as if I was obviously working in the Manhattan Project, but in my years of studying physics and sort of having conversations with the likes of Edwin and others, thinking about theoretical physics and stuff like that, there are elements in the movie that brought me back to those years in a sort of a deeply almost visceral way i felt it in my gut as i was watching it and and watching oppenheimer sort of unfold his thinking and and the way nolan and the writers of that script just sort of brought that about so it was great so yeah it was overall a, a positive experience and I think there's so many different topics we can tackle in light of that movie and in light of the history of the Manhattan Project and particularly the man Oppenheimer, Robert J. Oppenheimer. I would love to explore some concepts in the intersects of philosophy and physics. We could think about this in relation to moral philosophy, philosophy of science and other things like that. So, yeah, those are just some of my initial impressions.
1: Edwin, before we get into your response, Joe, did you watch the film? through a lens of like there's also this barbie movie that everyone's talking about like did that affect <laughs> your experience at all
0: Period.
1: not at not at all <laughs> <laughs> okay
0: not, a, not at all not, not that i have anything against barbie <laughs> right right. but but yeah not at all give barbie a try man give barbie a <laughs> yeah,
1: try. You, you saw it you saw barbie bro right.
0: no no no
2: i, I didn't I saw it. Saw
1: it. <laughs> we'll get into it, but Edwin, what was your experience like? When did you finally see it? How did you watch it? And what was your initial impressions? Spoiler free of the film.
2: Yeah, so I think the both of you saw it before me, and I actually didn't have much of an expectation for it until uh, I got your some of your feedback. I was late to the game and saw it recently, and definitely appreciated seeing it in the big, on the big screen. Right, it was it was much. It was certainly worth it. Like Joe, it was, it was very visceral. I mean, it, physics and what it's mean to, I know both Joe and I, and how it culminated in the story of the Manhattan Project is just, it, you know, it just comes back to us and it hits us hard because there's this parallel path on truth, uh, truth-seeking. And what Oppenheimer showed is how that actually can be directed towards something much different than that. And for that reason, it was a bit of an emotional roller coaster. One major reason is I actually used to work in the defense industry. I entered it almost along the lines of this is a really cool project to work on. And I exited with a lot of moral and ethical sort of questions in my head. And to this day, I still think about the work that I did during that time, but very much, and we'll talk about this, very much appreciated. The phenomenon of scientists from various disciplines coming together to create something so complex—it is just, to me at least, the most phenomenal thing. Outside of playing in a band, it's probably one of the most emotionally satisfying things that I've done in my life.
1: Yeah. Wow, that is very interesting. Um, I want to just dive right in before getting into the spoilers. My experience was I got to see a 70 millimeter print there's many different versions of the film the most like bombastic spectacle version of the film is 70 millimeter in IMAX i
0: mm-hmm. saw
1: the version like right below it which i'm kind of happy about cuz IMAX is get really loud one thing overlooked in IMAX is the sound system behind the screen and that film especially <laughs> will get into mm-hmm. some of the loudest sounds ever and just like randomly too like it'll just be dialogue then I, like just just explosion. So I'm happy I, I got to see it in regular 70 millimeter. And like overall, like without diving deep, I felt like the film was a little too long, like different than how you felt, Joe. I felt like mm-hmm. the length, it, like that last hour just felt a little too long as far as my takeaway of what the most important aspects of the film are. But I find it interesting what you said, Edwin, like your personal like ties to the film and that experience. So let's, let's jump right in. At this point, we could uh, discuss spoilers and we can get into the the nitty gritty details of the film. Um, But again, I'm going to open up with this question because I'm clearly fascinated by this. What do you guys think about the cultural phenomena of this film? The the subject matter of this film is, is like, in my opinion, it's highlighting the end of World War II, like the thing that is the catalyst of ending this global conflict. And this film is dramatizing the that turning point in the war when when the United States, through this this secret project of of gathering scientists, all that, like it was, it, it ended World War II and its war with Japan through the use and development of of an atomic weapon. Here we are in 2023 and Christopher Nolan, like the biggest director in Hollywood, makes a hundred million dollar film about this historical event. And it's, I mean, besides from Barbie, it's like the biggest movie at its time. What do you guys make of that cultural phenomenon of making this spectacle about this historical event, which ushered in the global world in which we live in today, this post-World War to world did that strike you going into the film? Has it struck you after watching the film and letting it kind of sit? What do you guys make of that?
0: A couple of things that come to mind Lewis you know I'm thinking about the marketing schema and how it coincided with Barbie and and all the memes on social media and the sort of setup and up to the crescendo release and I wonder what was the effectiveness of that upon bringing people in to watch this movie? One of the reasons why I wonder about that, its role, is because on its own, the topic doesn't necessarily seem to be, or it could be perceived as not so interesting and of course i don't think that maybe that's a prejudice on my part insofar as i see people flocking to kind of marvel and comic book movies and things like that so here comes along a particular uh, movie that seems to be a bit more weight here more substantive maybe something that would have been released in the smaller movie theaters on the off season you know those mm-hmm. those movies that will make it to <laughs> to the oscars that sometimes people they're like i'm i didn't even know this was released Right. But you know, Christopher Nolan is Christopher Nolan. So or whatever he touches essentially turns to gold or something, something similar to that. He does things big. And I think it is somewhat of a phenomenon. I don't know how to sort of make sense of that. Was it the topic itself? You know, is it just the fact that it's Christopher Nolan doing it coupled with the marketing schema? But I'm grateful to have gone and sort of get my mind thinking about some of the topics therein. And again, bringing me back to my years in, in the study of physics.
2: Yeah, I think it does seem a bit random, Joe. Yeah, but then when I take a step back, it almost seems ingenious. I don't think this was purposeful. Uh, for, so, for the one of the reasons is because we're currently in the age of AI, right? Mm-hmm. And there's yeah. so much parallel there, and you, you kind of have to wonder: was this time to actually help us struggle with that very question again? Right? We had the Doomsday episode before in which we were talking about a lot of these existential turning points in our history, and we're feeling it, right? This is probably the most acute since then. And then the other phenomenon, we'd love to get your perspective on this too, Joe. We're coming off of a low in our belief in science and scientists, right? We went through COVID, and for some good reasons, maybe not so good, you know, some not so good reasons, scientists were attacked Around well, what they were actually confident about and what they were not confident about, and that caused a society to struggle a bit with scientists as authorities. So, in at a time where scientists were was absolutely the pinnacle of our society, right? Everyone knew who Einstein was, and you would you would turn on the TV to listen to anything he had to say. Not so much, right? It was almost farcical to see like a Fauci and COVID actually responded to him. And then the last third thing that I was thinking about was, I am especially grateful for this. You said it with the Marvel aspect of this, Joe, but I feel like this is the generation of the geeks. I feel like the geeks have finally arrived, right? And I never thought, right, especially looking at my son and what he values, I never thought, right, that that would be the case in our society. It's like all these trends, it's like encounter trends that are happening. And I'm trying to make sense of it all, but it seems pretty pretty apt for the moment
0: that's really insightful edwin yeah yeah right it's like a confluence of things happening at once that bring this about and it's interesting your point about the the role of of the scientist right the, the persona of the scientist as in as almost in a certain sense as the new priesthood and how now that's mm-hmm. being challenged and and maybe even disregarded you know of mm-hmm. course political reasons maybe some other reasons then we have this film <laughs> that both highlights the power and perhaps even the splendor of scientific minds working together insofar as there isn't anything that they can't achieve, and yet the the particular danger, the acute danger that can come with that, which of course harkens back to some of our previous discussions about the role of technology in science, morally speaking, and whether or not our technology has surpassed our humanity, as, as Einstein spoke of, mm-hmm. and, and things like that. So yeah. I love that part. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you know, t- talk about a warning to us all. It's, yeah.
2: Which part specifically are you talking about? The last scene where he talks about, spoiler alert for anyone who's listening, where he talks about he's unleashed a chain reaction and what right. that is, which reflects what Joe just said in Einstein's warning, right? And it's, man, I can't believe it is more important today than it ever has been, that last point. That's right. That's right.
1: In the film, there's like multiple storylines, if you will. And, and the film jumps around different points on the timeline in the narrative. One of the storylines that I would like to pull out from the film is basically Robert Downey Jr.'s character. This guy sounds like that's Iron Man. But it's Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> just being <laughs> slighted. And that whole, like, mm. because he was slighted, basically was a whole hour of the film which to me, it was the least compelling, but it did produce like that strong final image where, you know, that, that moment, Oppenheimer talking to, to Einstein. Yes, yes. Like, what did they say being answered as like the final moment in the film? Bevan, you, you, you just shared the impact that moment had on you, but I was hoping we could jump a little bit more of like, why did the film spend so much time like, on that, like on, on Robert Downey Jr's character, like just because of that, that personal, like just that human misread, just creating a whole conflict. But also the film itself, like why did it choose to die on that hill? So to speak to spend so Mm. much time going back to this innocent seeming conversation throughout the whole film. What did you guys think about the significance of that scene and of that storyline? In the, in the context of the film I thought it
2: was genius I honestly I sat through that and I was like And it hit me like a two by four wow. And the reason that was is You You saw the story of the science And the scientist And everyone really do, Everyone knows the, that, that story to some extent Right? I mean that's what the Manhattan Project Actually represents Right But in parallel what that part showed was the impact of the political dynamics that was involved, the story of power. And th- this is the most subtle part of everything that happened in the Manhattan Project, but arguably the most important part, I would even say more so than even the science, because the series of decisions that was made, right? And Lewis, I know we'll go into this because you, you've brought this up in the past, it is what led to all of the after effects of all of this, right? And what Robert Downey Jr. represented was the pinnacle of a politician in that era. And this still, this exists today in a way that we are not aware of. Like this is, Joe can probably speak more to this in terms of like the the effect of, and you started this, Joe, with like marketing, the effect of like marketing and so on on our Mm -hmm. psychology And how that's been twisted and used to essentially direct us, which is the danger of all of this, right? It's nice that we're bringing up science again, but for what reason? How will it be used again? And so on. And that was probably, in my opinion, the most important lesson in the entire movie. Not only is there a danger of taking science to where you don't understand it will go, but there's a danger of playing with power in a way that you don't understand where it will go. And that's what Robert Downey Jr. represented. He thought he was in control in a way that the scientists thought they were in control and realized that he was far from it, right? And, and, and I think that, that, was a, that was a lesson that I think most might miss, but it's probably, in my opinion, one of the most important, if not the most important.
0: I love that, Edwin. I love your take on that, because I think what that does is it brings to the forefront the human all to human element that plays a decisive role in the unfolding of scientific, perhaps this is maybe too much of, a, of an overreaching word, but the scientific conquest of nature, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which is one of the embedded themes within this movie, right? So, so this addendum, right? This, this add-on towards the end, it could be seen as that, but I, what I enjoyed of it, was that it fleshed out that political element which cannot be divorced from the scientific Mm -hmm. element the the psychological element as well the egos that are being bruised Mm -hmm. and and the play out of strategy and cunning and sort of snake dynamisms right the sort of serpent element so so there's a lot there that i saw as an important means to bring out that human element, but to also say, hey, you know, the the testing of this and then the employment, I'm uh, using the wrong word, but the use of this weapon didn't stop there. It's not as if, okay, this is the end of World War II, but it actually ushered in, mm-hmm. right, the atomic age. And then, of course, subsequently later on, we have the Cold War and to today, right? This perpetual existential threat insofar as now we have weapons of mass destruction and so i thought that that was important to to sort of highlight at at the tail end of the movie and of course robert oppenheimer his life and sort of the downward spiral of the continued challenges and that he experienced and his sort of moral acuteness all of that so Yeah. yeah i saw it as important
1: i want to turn the conversation now to the science because my take from the film i don't know the intimate details of like the narrative of events during this time but it it seems like it started from like a theory in physics or quantum physics or whatever and because of that like curiosity man whomever responsible man or woman like as far as pursuing this science then came to this theory of hey we can make a weapon of immense power due to this new scientific knowledge that we have and then man goes down that path to where we are today can we talk a little bit more about that because it, it's like i don't know it's kind of giving me like free of knowledge vibes you know of like we're talking about ai in today's world but like going back then just the science and like deciding where to take the science this movie and this this historical event is a story that does that. But I wonder, like, to your point, Edwin, about what the movie or, or us as a society being directed to, like towards something in marketing, what is there to, mm. to learn from man given a choice like that to pursue knowledge or wisdom that could ultimately lead to destructive behavior? Pursuing that path led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, like ultimately, by actualizing the weapon that we thought we can make when we first came across this new science at the time that we did. Can you guys speak into that, like just the, the relationship and the temptation of science in the face of politics and society?
2: Let's walk down the path of the science itself. What Lewis just asked is super important, and maybe Joe, this is where you're going, but remember in the beginning of the film, there was something important there, which is that Oppenheimer, he essentially theoretically was one of the original discoverer of black holes. Like, this is, this is big, right? Everyone, like, he did all this stuff, but the guy theoretically in his mind created black holes. And, and I think it was called that, but no one called it black holes back then. So Joe, obviously, as the person who studied astrophysics I was super interested in that. How does he, Oppenheimer goes from black holes and at, during the same time that quantum physics is developing and he go, and, and, and he takes it there.
0: Yeah, my, my knowledge of his development of some of those particular theories is actually quite limited. But if I could sort of offer some conjecture here, even though the black hole, as it was eventually come to know, is a sort of celestial and astrophysical event, When we're dealing with forces like gravity on that level, as you know, Edwin, there's a marriage then between sort of large scale superstructures and the very quantum, right? And so you have this sort of beautiful merging of varying physics, (laughs) the physics of the small, the physics of the large, right? Uh, Or in other words, quantum physics and, and, and relativity, Einstein's general relativity specifically. Such that there is this sort of uh, marriage between the two and even what many will argue, even the breakdown of that physics, at least at the event horizon, insofar as we don't know what's happening. But it's interesting, as you're pointing to, Edwin, how these brilliant minds like Oppenheimer and others, right? You have George Lemaitre, a Catholic priest who comes and speculates and essentially gives us the Big Bang Theory. You have Einstein and Einstein's pushing back against what he is seeing in quantum physics. You know, his famous statement about God doesn't play dice, right? That this sort of fuzziness, you know, Einstein just did not like. And then he eventually came to accept even speaking about it as the greatest blunder, insofar as for him, as he was working out the tensor equations, right, yeah. he had to fudge the numbers a bit and give the omega number so that the universe is static and not this sort of dynamic unfolding, which would sort of point back to a, a radical beginning. So, anyway, all of these things are are happening. And I, I think exploring that a little bit more is important to then bridge the the human element that that's expressed also in the movie. Now, Edwin, I know you you have some background more than I do in particle physics. So maybe maybe just even the concept of fission, right? Mm-hmm. fission, w- which is a, a major element in the movie and and how this leads, maybe you could flesh out a little bit what's happening there. I mean it has been so many years for me <laughs> <laughs> that, that I forgot uh, some stuff but yeah and a lot of it as I say Joe you'll be like oh okay a lot of it has to do with
2: uh, energy yeah. energy transfer right and the what's if anyone who's like basic science has ever or remember the nucleus and the electrons you know and so on circling in it and the phase that wasn't intuitive at the time this is all is happening right so the fact that energy can be released as you go from one valence state to another, and all of that is telling us something fundamental about what Joe just said, and that is, everything is related and connected in physics in a way that we did not really understand. So we talk about the grand unified theory, which I, we were not, I think we need another episode for that to, you know, yeah. the, in, to talk about the actual limitations of physics today, because Mm. by the way, this was the last great leap in physics Mm. before we have this like, I mean, we're currently in the ice age in physics, right? We haven't developed anything beyond that sense, right? And and, and this next step was that, Joe's point again, was to combine all of this, and all of it has to do with energy. So when you talk about, I'll just use something simple, the sun. The sun is the perfect example of this process. And when you think about the sun feeding us, essentially, which is every plant life, every animal, everything on this planet is being supported through the energy provided by, like a slice of energy being provided by the sun. Mm. Just a slice, right? Fractions. And that was the type of energy we were trying to create. So, and more fun and, and we keep passing it back and forth because we have different yeah. uh, specialties. so yeah. the and now, we're, now I'm going to Joe's specialty, right? Yeah. in reality, Joe, all I have to offer is the particle physics is only as helpful as the it, 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 you know, it, it describes the process in the sun. so yeah. the the easiest way to say this is we're trying to create a sun, a mini sun, period, right? Again, that's why I was going to pass it back to you, Joe. And creating a mini sun, what does that entail, right? Essentially, I mean, there's... Because the opposite was, was being thought of at the same time as well, which is, can we create black holes? And we're still thinking about that. And that, so then watching this whole thing was like, okay, can we create... A, you know, When they were talking about the chain reaction, can we create a sun that would consume the entire earth, right? Because once you released energy at that level, which is how the sun was essentially created, what will happen? And then the you know the opposite would be a reaction that then leads to a black hole which can consume all like you know, that, you know that's super scary. But now we're getting right. into, again, Joe, this is your area on like yeah.
0: what causes that right. And just for our audience, so we don't get lost in the weeds of the science because because we could stay on this for a very long time, but but sort of bringing it back to the movie and connecting it to the human element, let me let me see if we could spin this a couple of ways. But just a few more words on, on, on the science here, and Edwin, as you've alluded to, the Sun, in particular. So there's a concept in astrophysics called hydrostatic equilibrium. Essentially the Sun is a controlled perpetual explosion, right? So you have a process called fusion, right, happening, and so you have large quantities of energy. I'm going to speak in as as much as possible in layman terms, so so, so we can all kind of be on the same page. You have this energy that's sort of pushing out right that gives the heat the energy the luminosity of the sun it's pushing out right and the reason why you can have a process like fusion right how is this happening in the sun is because of the immense gravity the gravity and the amount of material pushing in right so you have gravity wanting to collapse this massive luminous object right a star essentially and then you have fusion pushing out so you have this amazing balance right which again one of the phrases is hydrostatic equilibrium and and of course one of the questions is wow can we harness energy can we create energy like that and of course the trick is It happens in places like stars precisely because of the mass and the density and the gravity working all in tandem there. And so it it brings it. And you have, again, at the the quantum level and at the particle level, you have this concept called fusion. But yet in atomic physics, right, especially with the A-bomb and other development, you have a a slightly different process called fission, right? You're splitting atoms, right? Mm there's a split happening and when you split atoms there's a, a tremendous amount of energy that's released and that goes into something like the strong nuclear force and the forces if you will that hold the atoms uh, as such and what happens when you split it right That then has to be a release of energy and and so on and so forth so you have all of these processes happening here and you have these great minds playing on it now going bringing this back to the movie and even to uh, i think a larger domain. We could think of all of these sort of physical processes and dynamics as analogous to the kind of human, all-too-human elements that we see played out in this particular movie, and in, in fact, all of our lives, right? You know, how do I bridge that? How do I make the analogy? Well, let's just play around with the concept of the duality of the particle and the wave, right? Which anybody who has had any, even a cursory glance of quantum physics, you've heard of that, right? But at that level, an electron, for example, behaves as a particle when observed under certain conditions, and it also behaves as a wave. And, and this raises deep questions, right? And you have differing theories that attempt to account for this because it seems like a contradiction, right? How can this be, how can this happen? And yet a person like Oppenheimer in the movie has this sort of duality in his nature. You see his kind of sexual deviance, right? You see he's kind of, right, he's a womanizer and yet he's brilliant, right? So you have this sort of play of forces in the person of Oppenheimer where He's hesitant, he wants to move forward, right? He, he sort of makes some justifications in his mind, "We need to do this." And he tries to persuade other scientists, because if not, then the Germans will go ahead of, and, and, and be ahead of this. And then you see him sort of you know, backtracking and that, that sort of later development of, of, of the film. We have these elements which mirror, analogously, of course, metaphorically, of course, what's happening at the level of physics? And, and And I find that to be deeply ironic and 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 quite beautiful, this sort of bridge and 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 then the kind of leadership and communal fortitude that is needed in order to to sort of forge ahead in this dynamic without crashing the boat, if you will. I think there's so many ways in which we can sort of think about the philosophies of life and leadership that in one sense mirror what's happening at that physics level, but another sense is sort of pushing by way of physics and the discoveries and the need to discover, push back into the human element of leadership and culture and all of that there.
1: That was just like a tangential throw out, but yeah. You set up perfectly. Mm. I wanted to bring up a specific moment in the film that I think Mm. we can dive into what you're talking about. During the film, there's also, as the atomic bomb is being developed, Edward Teller, played by Benny Safdie, is also interested in pursuing the development of the hydrogen bomb. And in the film, Oppenheimer is like, like against that development in the project and instead kind of pursues full force, the original plan of the atomic bomb. I wanted to ask you guys specifically about that moment because I was struck by why that wasn't pursued in that context, you know, like why Oppenheimer as a leader said no to this, but yes to this. And also, like the fact that the hydrogen bomb, it does successfully get developed, and it does become exponentially, I don't know to what magnitude, but more powerful than the atomic bomb. What did you guys make of that moment, and also just speaking to that duality that Joe's talking about like? Yeah. Like why pursue science up to that point for Oppenheimer, you know, and then other people pursue it way past that point. What do you guys make of that?
2: The guy was a genius. The reason I say that is because he was not simply a scientist. He was, to Joe's point, he was a leader. So I, I think a lot of people see past the fact that he was a brilliant project leader. Brilliant. I know this firsthand doing the work myself, and seeing various failures of scientists who actually step into this leadership position. Because what Teller rep- represented was sci- a scientist almost in his truest form. This is essentially what Teller was doing. Right? He's like, he's like, okay, fine. We we figured out that we can do this. Forget the experiment. Let's go on, right? We got a new theoretical boundary to move towards. Mm-hmm. And yeah. let's, you know, let's do it. That's what Teller was doing. So, and 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 this this actually mirrors our science a lot more closer than what Oppenheimer was doing, which is there's all these social aspect and the way Joe said in the beginning, Oppenheimer was thinking about those who were dying at Germans' hands. He was thinking about a war. He was thinking about the cost. He was thinking about like objectives on top of objectives on top of objectives, and he had to make all of that work even in the face of some of the scientific opportunities that existed. And so for for that reason, what happened there was more leadership and Oppenheimer's ability to, 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 to actually hold back the scientists from pursuing their hunger to go beyond furthermore.
0: You got it, Edwin. And, you know, again, just for our audience, the difference in terms of the science, the physics between an atomic bomb and a hydrogen bomb, hydrogen bombs are far more powerful. In fact, the difference is, some of the differences that that we've alluded to earlier in our discussion, atomic bombs work on the level of fission. So you're trying to create a chain reaction such that then there's a splitting of the atoms, as it were, where, where for hydrogen bomb, you have the process of fusion and there's a, an attempt to use sort of mechanically the, the energy such that then you can fuse certain particles together, which releases even more energy. So again, fission versus fusion. And remember, fusion is what's powering the sun, right? And it's far more powerful. But again, just like as Edwin spoke about here, right, the the importance of leadership and to Think about the cost benefit analysis. okay, what's going to be most practical, short term here? What does that look like? Long-term goals in light of the science? yeah, you, you, know.
2: you have to remember that prior to the atomic bomb, what were we doing? We were dropping like these little like something things that were fractions of the power of the atomic bomb, right? I mean, this is the 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 leap that we took. From, from what was happening on the battlefield to what we eventually ended up doing was almost like aliens come into our planet with a new right. type of weapon. Like there was no need, like we, they, there was no need to go even beyond that, right? <laughs> you want to decimate us even more, right? It's like mm. that was enough, obviously, right? To meet the goals that they were trying to meet. That's right.
0: And, and just an interesting historical note, the first hydrogen bomb test Successful test in the United States was in 1952. So, so think about that in relation wow. to yeah. right? <laughs> the end of, of World War II. And then, you yeah. know, we're still forging ahead and we're trying to, right? And, and this is why Oppenheimer and others were like, yo, we got to stop, you know, or, or do whatever we can because this is going to keep on going. And of course, subsequently, you have the arms race. That's a great point. That's a great yeah. point.
1: I think this is a good time to turn into ethics in the context of the film. One of my favorite moments in the film, which I can't believe like actually happened, Oppenheimer met with President Truman in the Oval Office, and he famously said to President Truman, Mr. President, I feel I have blood on my hands. Mm. And Truman was mad at that. And he later said, I don't want to see that son of a bitch in this office ever again.
2: Yeah.
1: Which yeah. is crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just the... A- These two like giants of men talking to each other and just the way that conversation, I think it's a great symbol and starter for this conversation about morality and ethics in the face of the atomic bomb and the Manhattan Project. What did you guys make of not only just that scene, but also the ethics and morality of Oppenheimer and what he dealt with in successfully developing the atomic bomb and then also its subsequent use like right away really like shortly after and the impact of that what what did you guys make of that
2: yeah i can only offer commentary and listen to what joe have to say here because i soup i've actually been looking forward to this part joe and my commentary is that from a leadership perspective truman what truman was saying i think was correct what Oppenheimer did was l- he led the development of a weapon. Trubin used that weapon, and that's the distinction he was trying to make. He's like, and when he said, blood is on my hand, he's like, I dropped the bomb, right. not you. Like, so they could have developed the bomb, and, there were, there were, and actually this happened, right? There, there were several back and forth on, should we just invite the Japanese to Trinity? And if they just saw this, they obviously would give up, right? And there were various other options that existed, and Truman made a decision to not let them know, and this is why civilians were killed, right? Because there was protocols for you to actually warn someone when you were about to drop a bomb so they could evacuate. he they wanted to they wanted to bypass all of that so that they because you know they had only two bombs, right. And so he made a decision to drop that bomb in face of many, many, many other options. But yeah, in terms of the ethics and
0: morals, I'd definitely like to hear your thoughts, Joe. The Manhattan Project is an archetypal expression of the human ability to crack the code of nature and harness the forces therein. Think about the discovery of fire. that allowed us to cook and do all the other things that that we hitherto take for granted and yet of course we know the destructive power of fire as well when when it's yielded in a certain way of course when we're talking about nuclear weapons that's scaled up in the order of magnitudes and so this nevertheless still raises the same kind of question whether it's the invention of fire or the invention of an atomic bomb which is If human beings have the capacity to do this which we clearly do and we move forward what is our moral responsibility right it's one of those questions that that is the question at stake now there are many different moral theories Uh, a moral theory is an attempt to give account for why a certain action is right or wrong or why a certain person or character is either good or bad right that's the definition of a moral theory Mm -hmm. And you have moral theories that focus on character, typically like virtue based theories, and then you have theories that focus on actions, the rightness or the wrongness of a particular act. And those are called action based moral theories. Some of those action based moral theories are things like utilitarianism, deontology, and so on. Natural law theory can be seen as that. And these particular theories attempt to, to, to make sense regarding the question of what actions we ought to do. So if you go with the utilitarian frame, which also is, is known as the consequentialist perspective, Which, by the way, is the perspective that many tend to, especially in our modern world, tend to hold. Especially at the governmental level, you say, "Well, the action is right in so far as it produces the greatest good for the greatest number of people involved." Right. So you're thinking about the action in light of its proposed end. Right. The 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 particular consequence. Right. Hence consequentialism. And there's something that makes a lot of sense about that. Right. (laughs) Right. On the surface, but it also has a dark undercurrent because it could justify certain actions we may think is really wrong but it justifies it because supposedly greater good is produced at the end right and hence the question of the the use of this was truman and united states at large justified in dropping two atomic bombs right okay how many people are dying how many people have died future subsequent generations by way of radiation fallout all of that there versus the good okay what was the good well okay the war stopped okay many american lives were saved right and so you're sort of doing those calculations there deontological ethics deontology is also an action-based theory but it says okay the ends do not justify the means so we can't think of of this the consequence we need to look at the particular action itself so the deontologist will say, no, there are certain actions that are inherently good. And then there are certain actions that are inherently not good, right? They're bad. And so there are those deontologists who say, never, never is it justified to torture a human being, right? Even if they have information that could save lives, it's, we're still not right. Because of the dignity and worth of the human being as such, we have to treat them as an ends and not as a means to an end and so on. So, so I just say that for our listeners, right, right that there are differing, perspectives different ways in which we can look at this and how we determine or how do we sort of toggle through the options of these moral theories Mm -hmm. in large part is going to be based on our values right so there's a whole nother subsystem of thought called value theory and the kind of overall metaphysical commitments and paradigmatic setup that we have so our metaphysical commitments, whether they are religious or not, is going to deeply shape and inform the particular moral theories we will be drawn to or use and, and, and whatnot. So, so all of that <laughs> is to say that obviously it's somewhat complicated, but there are some tools at our disposal as we think through these things, not only individually, but collectively and collaboratively. Dr. Terry, you don't get off that easy.
1: (laughs) I'm struggling
2: with this one, man. Yeah. Yeah. So understanding that essentially what I heard was that there are various ethical moral Mm -hmm. models that every character in this play can use to justify the decisions they've made. Mm. But what is the right one? Yeah. I, I know that's, it, it sounds stupid, right? To, you know, to, yeah, no, no, in, I don't in think a, face yeah. of a theoretical, but like, is, no. I struggle with that. Like, I, I want philosophy to tell me, mm. is, there, is there a better model <laughs> versus another? Like, what would have been the right thing to do and based, based on what? maybe yeah, a wow. meta model of some type a meta model yeah 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 wow.
0: and and, and uh, Edwin, I'm, I'm really happy you're pushing forward in this and asking the question it's not a stupid question it's not a naive question it's actually the question and if a philosopher cannot answer then the philosopher is playing some other type of game <laughs> right? so wow. i really i really love your 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 pushback and say all right bro Come on, man. What what is really I And I believe that, right? There's some kind of intellectual gymnastics that may be happening, but that's not... Philosophy seems to have... It seems to need something more. Now, go back to what I just said, right? That a lot of this is going to be radically determined by a person's metaphysical commitments, right? So, you know... For example, if you are a kind of radical, ontological naturalist, maybe an atheist in in the in, in the guise of Friedrich Nietzsche or Jean-Paul Sartre, they're going to answer this in a radically different way, right? Partly because at the meta-ethical level, they will submit essentially the idea that really right and wrong or good and bad are nothing more than moral constructs or, or social constructs, cultural cultural accretions, right? Because there's nothing at the ontological level that grounds right because there's a radical removal of the transcendent and so on right tolstoy will famously say in russia you know if there is no god then all things are possible right Dostoevsky kind of plays with this in his works nietzsche very much so right so you have this sort of radical metaphysical perspective that says yeah there is no transcendent reality and thus you know, right and wrong, good or bad, those questions are nearly, at the best, they're merely procedural, right? And if you sort of think about, well, what is really right or wrong, they may push back and say, well, there really is no such thing as really. We may feel like a sort of gut reaction that it's wrong for someone to kill a a two-year-old for no reason or to go around mass murdering people, but, but, but it really is though, right? So mm. right. So so that metaphysical. now now, of course, for me personally, right? I am unapologetically, right, a Christian, I'm a Catholic. And so I have a different metaphysical commitment, which for me, I see the use of the atomic bomb here as just not justified. Now, there probably are, indeed, Catholic moral theologians that may argue to the contrary. But those debates are kind of in-house debates. Both of which, or wherever we land, there is a grounding principle, right? There is a metaphysical uh, anchoring point that will allow us to, to, to adjudicate this as substantive. But I, I, as a Catholic and as a Christian, I see this as not really justified. There is a, a theory called a uh, Just War Theory, which was constructed by St. Augustine, a brilliant mind, and I don't really see this following or falling into those elements there. Of course, there's more to say, but that's my, my mm-hmm. response. I, I just don't see this as being justified.
1: One interesting point made to me in the film that I would like to submit as part of this conversation was the lack of understanding of of like radiation and radioactive Mm. decay like as as the manhattan project entered this new space as it successfully developed atomic weapons and used them the world shortly after would see the horrors of of uh, atomic radiation but there was still this period of like wait we don't we don't really understand what's happening here and and i think that lack of of understanding also played out in other nuclear disasters later on down the line. And it was actually yesterday, I think there was a report that they're they're starting to release some of the the contaminated waters from the Fukushima plant from that disaster. Like they're just like, what do we do with all this water? Like they're just starting to release it back in the ocean, which is part of why I'm thinking about this. To what extent does man's lack of understanding, lack of knowledge in areas, play into the moral and ethics of these decisions because i wondered to what extent would let's say full understanding of radioactive mm. decay like prior to the use of atomic weapons would that have would that affected the decision to utilize atomic energy like seeing how how much it just kind of like sticks like you know like how how much like dealing with radiation and and Mm -hmm. and how harmful it could be. To what extent does the lack of knowledge play into Mm. morals and ethics?
0: I'll just quickly say this. You know, morality presupposes moral agency, right? It presupposes the ability to choose, right? So some level of free will. And free will has to be thought of in relation to awareness, you know, in relation to knowledge. I'm not really, I'm I'm only free insofar as I am aware of, of varying elements, right? so in other words we don't take dogs or chimpanzees or elephants and put them on trial because there seems to be a lack of an awareness of of the sort of moral universe that's not saying that there aren't embedded social mechanisms among those species right they they clearly are but at our level there there's a there's a disconnect as it were mm-hmm. but we can take and the same by the way with with a, with a three-year-old right?
1: Right. <laughs> a, right
0: a three-year-old that's right, right is doing something uh, bad right we don't put them on trial and say oh you know we're trying to inculcate within them a, a moral awareness we'll say oh no johnny you know this is right this is wrong and so on but but yet it's somehow there's a deep sense intuitively of what's right and wrong as well right and we see that because children one of the first things that they'll say is like oh that's not fair Right there's a sense of justice, Mm, right? right, right. So, 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 so you know, moral philosophy or or ethics, all of this assumes a a moral agency, and so your question is 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 such a good one, Lewis, because I would submit that you know to the degree in which we are aware is the degree in which we are responsible, right? Mm. Now, if I mean, you know, I so if we were radically ignorant about radiation and and its its effects which i don't think that was the case at the development of the atomic bomb and i know that the united states of america was running experiments even after many of the time secretly on citizens a lot of people don't know this you know so we were definitely kind of arriving at a deeper awareness of radiation but it didn't take a quantum physicist to know that if you drop a bomb and you have radiation fallout it's going to have deleterious effects we may not know how long the radiation right. or or what you know what i mean and in fact there were some accidents in the manhattan project there were some who were exposed to radiation poisoning right. and there were physicians on those bases that had to help deal with that so there was an awareness and so there was sufficient awareness to then say okay there is indeed a moral responsibility for that particular variable as right. well right. yeah and lewis i think it might be helpful to make this real right like
2: i i'm not sure if you would drop a bomb today like the mm. you know uh, so i think it's a real time experiment so if you were to ask us like if you were to ask a president right now all right this is the scenario would you drop a bomb not even Russia. Like this. This we're we're in 2023 in the midst oh. of the Ukraine war, and there has been a lot of fear around whether or not we're not even talking about nuclear bombs. We're just talking mm-hmm. more compact versions of those, yeah. and yeah. those haven't even been used yet. Yeah. Right. So I think it's clear that with more knowledge, we our decisions would be different. Where I struggle is that there are things that's much more complex than a than dropping a bomb on a society, right? I even, at the risk of opening all type of debates here, I even think about the way we treat each other, race relations, and biases, and so on. Right? Do you blame someone if they're a racist? Sometimes I look at a racist and or uh, someone who's acting in a way accordingly and say hmm, they don't know any better. Right? Mm. You know, there's, you know they're living in they live they're living in ignorance, and that actually informs the way I actually react to them and how I actually sort of uh, shift my focus and even empathy to try to understand how they can better understand so th- th- this is a powerful question man and i just maybe joe if you could just um reflect on that for a quick second I, how 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 do we actively leverage some of the uh, learnings and philosophy to deal mm. with those type of questions
0: yeah no it's great first just by exploring some of those moral theories and value theories that I've uh, mentioned before, you know, building our toolbox there so that we can can better assess the data that is in front of us, better assess the the experiences that we're having. I think also to your point, Edwin, we all have a moral responsibility to get as much information as we can out there, right? And to enlighten folks and whatever that may mean, whatever that looks like. So if we're dealing with race relations and biases, being communicative and trying to set up some pathways so that folks can be aware of course what people will do with that information will will be on them but we want to create spaces where people are made more aware of these forces that may shape and inform their own behavior and their own thinking so i think all of that comes into play and, I, and again like that right the, the role of leadership is so important as we think about that right um because who's going to execute this the academicians are going to stay in their ivory towers we're going to write our books we're going (laughs) to go to academic conferences and speak but that doesn't necessarily translate in a one-to-one way into everyday life even though the whatever is discussed in the academy will eventually have a deep impact on on the world at large years later so we need leaders to to concretize, to take a lot of this and, and sort of bring it to the people, right? Or bring it up to the people, depending on how you you want to see it. And it all has its role, which I always go back to Lewis, because Lewis, who's in the arts, who's in communications in this regard, I, I that's a huge responsibility and and a and a beautiful place to be in, where given our infrastructure in 2023 with the internet and everything else we can get word out, right? In a a quicker and more efficient way.
1: Guys, thank you for this conversation about Oppenheimer and the film. I think from this conversation, I have definitely looked at the film more positively because I think Oppenheimer's leadership, I can think about more critically in the context of the film. I don't think I looked at his leadership as closely until speaking with you guys yeah, like it's it's awesome to just be alive at this time where cinema chooses to hire to to focus and highlight this very, very important global event and the the ethical implications of that. So I appreciate this conversation, and I'm glad that we're able to go there together. So thank you,
0: thanks, Lewis. Thank you.